A new United Nations report warns the impacts of climate change are increasing and inevitable. Experts say that we have until 2030 to avoid catastrophe. Temperatures in the Arctic have warmed about two to three times the global average. It will be very difficult and not impossible for our children to control climate change. This is South of Two Degrees, and I am your host, Brian Barnes. It is so good to have you with us today on the only podcast dedicated to bringing unfiltered scientific research to the forefront of the climate conversation. We've got a great show today as we look at the U.S. national parks, their beginnings, their importance for scientific research, and their future in a world affected by, you guessed it, anthropogenic climate change. So my friends, once more, into the fray. Welcome back, and I want to kick off today's show by addressing a conversation I had the other day. I had just wrapped up one of my many talks on climate change and was doing Q&A from the audience when a young woman mentioned that she wanted to be more vocal as she was passionate about addressing anthropogenic climate change, but that she was still trying to find her voice and was looking for advice. I spoke with her briefly about what made her, well, her only to find out that she was an artist. I suggested that she use her own medium to express her voice as she had a unique venue for expression and storytelling that many of us, including myself, just do not have. The two of us moved on, and I didn't think about the conversation again until we were prepping this show. You see, many of us credit Theodore Roosevelt with the national parks. Sure, he played the most pivotal role, but it wasn't his idea, nor was he the first president involved in the idea. John Muir, you're likely yelling at your phone. Well, again, a key figure and a personal hero of mine, but the idea wasn't originally his either. Rather, the idea of the national parks came not from a conservationist or a politician, but rather from an artist. George Catlin, in 1832, traveled west to the Dakotas and was concerned with the loss of wilderness, wildlife, and Native American civilizations. The phrase that started it all was when Catlin wrote that his areas of concern might be preserved, quote, by some great protecting policy of government in a magnificent park, a nation's park, containing man and beast in all the wild and freshness of nature's beauty. End quote. Sadly, no one really paid attention. It wasn't until Senator John Conness introduced legislation 32 years later in 1864 to transfer Yosemite Valley and Mariposa Big Tree Grove to the state of California so they may be, quote, preserved for the benefit of mankind. This legislation was passed by Congress and signed on June 30th of that year by Abraham Lincoln effectively making him the first president involved in what would become the national parks as the condition was attached to that bill that Yosemite must, quote, be held for public use, resort, and recreation, inalienable for all time, end quote. In contrast, Yellowstone wasn't well known amongst the non-native peoples of the land until 1869 when expeditions through the area wrote about the unique landscape and suggested preserving the area. Surprisingly, this notion was backed strongly by a powerful lobbying force at the time, the North Pacific Railroad, who was building a line through Montana at the time and stood to benefit from a local tourist attraction. While the idea gained support in Congress and Yosemite was cited as precedent, 
Yellowstone was unique as access lay mainly in Montana, but most of the park in Wyoming. Because of the cross-territory nature, neither were states yet, it was suggested that the area remain in federal control, unlike Yosemite. Despite opposition, the bill passed Congress and was signed into law by President Ulysses S. Grant on March 1, 1872. Fast forward 18 years, and after petitioning from the legendary conservationist John Muir, Yosemite moved back to federal control and became a national park as well, receiving the same protections as Yellowstone. The story we all know, however, picks up in 1901. The book Our National Parks by Muir had just been published, and one of its readers just happened to be then-President Theodore Roosevelt. Just as a fan of the Marvel Universe today may have written Stan Lee, may he rest in peace, wanting to meet, so too did fans of literature at the turn of the 20th century. Roosevelt wrote to Muir in a letter on March 14, 1903, where he said, quote, I wish to write you personally to express the hope that you will be able to take me through the Yosemite. I do not want anyone with me but you. And I want to drop politics absolutely for four days and just be out in the open with you. End quote. As you likely know the story from here, and I don't want to spend the whole show on just the National Park's history, I'll wrap up by noting this trip had such a profound effect on President Roosevelt that he doubled the number of national parks during his presidency, and more importantly, signed the Antiquities Act on the 8th of June, 1906, that gives the president the authority to create national monuments from federal land. Now, I tell you that story for two reasons. First, to share with you that no matter your talents, they can be used to speak out and tell your own climate story. You never know who you might influence or impact. The other is to set the stage as we look at the national parks, how they are impacted by and their role in mitigating climate change, and their importance as a scientific lab to better understand our planet. Now, in 2001, not many outside the scientific community and the little-known IPCC were discussing climate change. And Inconvenient Truth didn't even come out and try and wake up the world until 2006. The U.S. national parks, however, were already trying to assess their impact. Incredibly, this wasn't new to them at the time as they had been working on piecing together their greenhouse gas footprint for several decades, but it all finally came together in a 2001 assessment paper titled Estimating and Reducing Emissions from Within National Parks by Don Shepard of the National Park Service. In the opening, he states the purpose of the assessment thusly, quote, If NPS is to be a leader in protecting these national treasures with which we have been entrusted, we must exemplify the highest level of stewardship. We also believe that NPS should be an example to others, both in the private sector and in industry, by showing how new technologies and new approaches can be applied in a practical manner to solve common problems. End quote. Further, he notes, Quote, if we are to be credible in working with other government entities to develop strategies to reduce air pollution across the nation, we must, at the same time, be taking a close look at our own house to ensure that our hands are clean. End quote. 
Why is this important? It's important because it demonstrates the national parks hold themselves to a standard well above what was expected at the time. Not only are the national parks a gateway to the outdoors for many that don't venture deep into the backcountry, but the fact that they see themselves, and have for 40 plus years, as an entity that needs to lead by example when addressing climate change is, well, just damn inspiring. However, as per usual with any paper discussed on this show, There's a big caveat. They didn't evaluate carbon emissions. They looked at particulate matter and found that the two dominating factors in this area were road dust and prescribed burning. They evaluated sulfur dioxide and nitrous oxide, which the major sources were, no surprise, automobiles. And they finally looked at VOCs or volatile organic compounds, which was dominated by prescribed burning and watercraft. Now, the paper did provide some interesting information. However, it didn't push the envelope with suggested measures. While Shepard noted the benefits of a then-recently installed solar array in Joshua Tree National Park that replaced generators that burned 14,000 gallons per year, he surprisingly didn't push the idea, and the recommendations fell well short by today's standards. Simply pushing for gasoline-powered generators instead of diesel, fluorescent lights as opposed to incandescent ones, and the replacement of passenger cars with public transportation. While a small step forward, it wasn't until almost a decade later that stronger measures around climate change were put in place. In 2010, the National Park Service launched the Climate Change Response Program. It was created because, quote, climate change is a persistent and accelerating challenge. Its impacts will continue for many decades or centuries, including extreme weather events, species rain shifts, extirpation, damage to infrastructure and facilities, etc. Now, further, they realized that there was a growing desire for understanding and use of climate change science among National Park Service managers who, quote, increasingly recognize the importance of exploring climate projections and adaptation options in resource management and facilities protection, end quote. This was followed up with three other significant moves under the former director of the National Park Service, Jonathan B. Jarvis, who served in that capacity from October 2009 to January 2017. While you likely don't know the name, you absolutely should. He is quite possibly the most critical and influential person with regards to equipping the national parks to be in a position to address anthropogenic climate change, and under his leadership, great steps forward in science and management were made. The three items of note are as follows. One, the implementation of the Green Parks Plan. Two, the revisiting of the Leopold Report. And three, the establishment of the Climate Change Action Plan. Now let's briefly look at each to understand their significance. The Green Parks Plan was Director Jarvis's second major initiative after the Climate Change Response Program. It was launched on Earth Day, April 19th of 2012. Quick aside, I have to say it's funny to look back and see how much has changed, as this was actually something I talked broadly about during my 2012 congressional bit. Oh, to have the information I have now back then. But I digress. The Green Parks Plan has the express goal to define the strategic collective vision for long-term sustainable operations by establishing ambitious goals to improve sustainability and reduce greenhouse gas emissions throughout the national park system. Now, we'll circle back to this in a minute, but for now, let's jump from April to August of 2012. You see, it was on August 25th that the National Park System Advisory Board released the document Revisiting Leopold, Resource Stewardship in the National Parks. 
Now, I know there's a lot to unpack in that one sentence, like, what is the National Park System Advisory Board? Who is Leopold? And why do we need to revisit his report? Well, here's the short answer. The National Park System Advisory Board is a group of no more than 12 citizens of the United States that have demonstrated commitment to the mission of the national parks for a term of four years and are appointed by the Secretary of the Interior. Their role is to advise the director of the National Park Service and to work as the body that makes recommendations for designations of natural and historic landmarks. Under Director Jarvis, they had direct input on addressing anthropogenic climate change and likely will again soon. Now, please bear in mind I am not diving into politics here, rather just stating the recent history as it's worth knowing. On January 17, 2018, 10 of the 12 members of the board all resigned after the Interior Secretary Zinke refused to meet with them and had actually suspended any committee outside of his own staff six months prior. Despite this, 10 new individuals were appointed during the Trump administration. Now, three have left since the Biden administration took office, and the remaining seven all have terms that end before midsummer next year. This means the entire board will likely be refreshed under the current administration. So if you didn't know about this board, you should, as for a long time, it has traditionally had some of the most knowledgeable and talented individuals and is an achievement of a lifetime to be appointed. It definitely is my hope that the board is full soon in teeming with accomplished scientists, brilliant communicators, land steward experts, and native voices, especially as the 30 by 30 program, which we discussed a few weeks ago, gets underway. Okay, on to Leopold. The Leopold Report, officially Wildlife Management in the National Parks, was published in 1963. Director Jarvis knew that this document had a greater influence than almost any other report on the National Park Service, but much has changed that needed to be addressed. It then fell to the Science Committee of the National Park System Advisory Board to revisit it, which they did, as I mentioned a hot second ago on August 25th, 2012. Now, I know I suggest you read a lot of studies I discuss on the show, but this ranks up there. And part of the brilliance behind it is that they leverage the use of a story-based narrative in the prologue, something not common at the time and even now, as we discussed a few weeks ago, is still something that most are just catching on to. Now, the reason this report is so important is that while the original focused on wildlife management, the revisit expanded the scope of the original to include all natural and cultural resources and even in the face of anthropogenic climate change. The final landmark initiative came in November of 2012 with the release of the National Parks Climate Action Plan. While intended primarily as an internal document for park managers, its goal was to provide a set of, quote, high-priority, no-regret actions, end quote, that the National Park Service was committed to undertaking to help park managers and staff effectively plan for and address climate change. This is yet another document I wish I had time to cover in detail, but as I don't, pop over to the website southof2degrees.org and you can find the direct link there. While set to just cover 2012 to 2014, the Climate Change Action Plan gave rise to many initiatives that now support the Green Parks Plan we discussed a minute ago. This leads us to the next groundbreaking paper, this one by Monahan and Fischelli, published on July 2nd, 2014, titled Climate Exposure of the U.S. National Parks in a New Era of Change. Now, the reason this paper is significant is it looked at the reverse of the equation that Shepard studied. Instead of looking at the impact the national parks make on the climate, 
it looked at how the changing climate is impacting the national parks. Now, I'm not going to dive deep into this paper here as it's very numbers heavy, but a stat of note, and remember this was 2014, is that using a 10, 20, and 30-year sliding window, 91% of national parks are above the 75th percentile of their historical range of variability with regards to annual mean temperature. 55% are above the 95th percentile. I'll let that sit with you for a second. So as we wrap up, where do we stand today? Well, for reasons we won't dive into on this show, much of the information coming out of the national parks about climate change stopped during the last administration. It's rare to find an official document with a date beyond 2018. That said, thankfully neither the infrastructure work to address climate change within the parks nor the scientific research that takes place monitoring its ecosystems did. In fact, before the flow of information stopped, there was an incredible special feature in Ecosphere, which is an open source journal published by the Ecological Society of America, or ESA, on the 21st of November, 2016. It was titled, Ecological Monitoring and Evidence-Based Decision-Making in America's National Parks. In it, they discuss the benefit of the national parks as a hotbed for scientific research and highlight 20 papers with groundbreaking research. In the special feature, they note, quote, As park ecosystems react to increasingly rapid climate change, ecosystem monitoring will be crucial for adaptation and mitigation amid unprecedented change, end quote. Further, quote, the future of the national park system and the MPS's ability to adapt, restore, and protect resources it is entrusted to conserve depends on quality science, properly conducted and effectively applied, end quote. Now, while there is still much more to do, it's worth noting that Crater Lake National Park, Glacier National Park, Isle Royal National Park, which I dearly love as I interned there one summer for the National Park Service and just loved every minute of it. Anyway, Mojave National Preserve, Natural Bridges National Monument, and Yellowstone National Park are all 100% powered by renewables as of August of 2018. And while today's focus was on the U.S. national parks, their creation sparked a worldwide movement. Today, there are over 1,200 national parks or equivalent preserves spread across more than 100 nations. Now let's wrap this up by asking, why is all this so important? The National Park Service manages the largest number of constructed assets of any civilian agency in the federal government. It operates and maintains more than 26,000 buildings spread across over 400 national parks that account for more than 55 million square feet of constructed space, nearly 5 million acres of maintained landscapes such as campgrounds, urban parks, and battlefields, 18,000 miles of trail, and more than 3,000 utility systems. All this while serving the 327.52 million visitors annually. So when you think about the impact we are making by simply visiting these grand monuments to our shared natural and cultural heritage, the answer is not to visit less. No, that goes against the very purpose of the system in the first place. Rather, the answer is to lessen our impact and leave as little trace as we can when we do. Thankfully, the National Park System has acknowledged the fact and yoked themselves with the responsibility of leading by example in addressing anthropogenic climate change, but not by being a shining beacon on a hill, rather by maintaining the stark natural beauty of nature.
And that wraps up another episode of South of Two Degrees. I hope this gave you a greater appreciation for the work of the National Parks, the National Park Service, and the soon-to-be-full National Park System Advisory Board. Support them, donate to them, and best of all, go visit them as they are truly on the leading edge of addressing climate change in our country. As always, aside from checking out the latest information on our website, blog, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Clubhouse, and Instagram, do this one. Tell one other person about this show in the next week. Have at least one conversation about climate change with someone else. And above all, keep it south of two degrees. <laughs>